Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Our guest, as promised, is Father Tad Boholchik from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Father is a priest of the Diocese of Fall River in Massachusetts, but he lives in Pennsylvania where the National Catholic Bioethics Center is, and he's the, okay, I'm going to say Director of Education, but is that right? That's right? Director of Education. That's exactly he's, right. Uh, Father, uh, thanks for being here with us. Great to be with you, Sai. Glad to uh, to join you again. Uh, you are, I think, you have lifetime security in your job, uh, given that uh, they keep coming up with new things in the biotechnology fields, and those new things need uh, to be considered uh, from a moral perspective. So, you know, you're absolutely right. I always tell people I'm never going to be out on the street. I mean, there is just so much happening all yeah. the time. And um, no two no two days at my job are ever the same. Uh, it's really it's awesome. So yeah, I think with the development, the marching on of biotechnology, there are just new twists and turns uh, around every corner. It's and there's um, it's 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 strange that this that all of this biotechnology this flourishing in the biotechnology field. Maybe it's not strange. Maybe this is just the way things happen. Uh, but it, it comes at a time when we are massively um, varied in our views of what's moral and what's immoral. There, there's just no consensus on morals at all in our society. Well, I think that's part of the challenge when we talk about research science, that we have you know, situations, for example, where scientists are setting up panels that are going to be discussing ethics, trying to figure out things for the future. So for example, heritable human genome editing. This means you make changes to the genes and they get passed on to your kids and grandkids and great grandkids. Is What are the moral issues around that? And there have been some commissions that have been set up and a lot of times, you know, it's kind of, at least to me, it looks like the old buddy network. Oh, in yeah. other words, yeah, the scientists bring in the, their ethicist friends who are going to kind of cut them some slack, say, tell what they want to hear. And that's how the ethics proceeds. It's kind of a almost utilitarian, uh, you know, approach. And so, yeah, I agree. There's not a consensus. I think a lot of times important players are left out of the discussion, including the Catholic Church. You know, the Catholic Church has such a well-developed ethical and moral tradition that analyzes these types of questions. And it's essential that we be invited to the table when these kinds of discussions are getting started. Uh, 888-3187-884 is the number. If you have questions in the, uh, in the field of bioethics that you'd like to ask Father Tad, you are welcome to call. Maybe that has to do with the treatment of uh, life, treatment of disease uh, in the earliest stages of human life, maybe the latest stages of human life. Uh, maybe it has to do with where you work uh, and you have more, maybe moral qualms or questions about the work that's going on where you are. If you have bioethics questions, you're welcome to call. 888-318-7884. Uh, let me just read you a headline that I never thought I'd read, frankly. Uh, September uh, in, on CNN, a synthetic embryo made without sperm or egg could lead to infertility treatments. What, what happens in the mind of a Catholic priest bioethicist when he reads a headline like that? Well, you immediately begin to ask some questions. Uh, wh why is it synthetic? What does that really mean? And is it, in fact, a real embryo that we're talking about? So, you know, the interest here on the part of scientists is that 
they want to be able to produce something that they can study that will develop, go through the early steps of development in pretty much the same way as a regular embryo. And they would like to be able to claim, especially if they're doing this with humans, that, oh, it's not actually a full-blown embryo. It's not the real deal, but it's pretty darn close, and we can get a lot of good scientific information out of it. But, you know, the claim that it's not the real deal sometimes isn't carefully vetted. And so I think the danger here is that, like with cloning, you know, cloning produced a real sheep, Dolly the sheep. It was not a fake sheep. It was not a partial sheep. Right. It was not a, a you know, other entity. And it, when you do human cloning, the same thing, you will be producing real human beings. So the question with these synthetic embryos, and just to give you a, a moment's background on the, the piece about them that's of interest, is you can take stem cells and just from the stem cells themselves, get an embryo to be developed. Now, you have to do some complicated tricks to make the stem cells behave in this way because normal stem cells don't do that. They only produce cells and tissues. But scientists are figuring out how to make this uh, happen. And so <clears throat> then the question becomes, all right, if you've got the way to do this, is this a real embryo that you've produced? And the scientists are interested in having it look as much as possible like the the full-blown real deal. And so if it is, if it's just like cloning, then we have a moral line that immediately pops up when we're talking about human beings. And we got to say, no can do. We cannot be using these embryos. We cannot be producing them yeah. in laboratories, etc. It's a funny use of the word synthetic. It, it almost seems a little... Uh arrogant, frankly, to use the word synthetic in that way, in that we're not actually synthesizing anything. We're just getting what has already been created to behave in a way that it doesn't normally behave. But we, we haven't actually, it's not like it's made out of plastic or something. It's not a, 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 a synthetic thing. Absolutely. You're right. And I mean, this is, this is the interesting piece that life always comes from pre-existing life. We're never at the point that we're truly sort of throwing a bunch of elements together yeah. and, you know, generating life. We're just not doing that. We're just not capable of that. So <clears throat> this is um, a kind of permutation. It's a little bit of a workaround to get the biology to be more pliable in researchers' hands. But it's, it's not really uh, creating life. It's just doing, you know, a workaround to get to the same starting point, which is, of course, the human embryo. The number is 888-318-7884. If you have bioethics questions, perfect time for you. Father Tad Baholchik, our guest, the Director of Education for the National Catholic Bioethics Center, which you can find at ncbcenter.org. I haven't spoken with you, Father, since the Dobbs decision and the, the change in the, in the law in the United States regarding abortion. Um, clearly lots of good things have happened since then, uh, in that, you know, you just look at the map of the United States and you see that there, there are much more robust protections in most places, not in every place, but in many, many places, much more robust protections for the unborn, not perfect, but better. Uh, but what are the trends that you're seeing that uh, you as a bioethicist say, well, we need to attend to this or maybe a point we need to make more clearly 
uh, in the public sphere that's not being made now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you ask that because I was watching a, uh, a Twitter video the other day from a fundraiser dinner, pro-life fundraiser dinner in Washington, D.C. And pro-abortionists seated a number of people in the audience. Uh, they, I guess they must have purchased tickets ahead of time and came into this dinner. And then at certain points they stood up and protested. And it was interesting to listen to the protests of one or two of them. One of them said, well, you know, this is going to mean uh, that, that women can't get good health care. When abortion is illegal, then women are going to be, you know, dying and so on. And I think that's become a kind of um, clarion call on their part. It's, it's become a, a rallying cry to say that somehow women will be neglected. And I think there's a special emphasis here suggesting that it's going to be in Catholic facilities, yeah. that if you have a complicated pregnancy and you show up at a Catholic hospital, that you're not going to get the kind of care that's appropriate. And, you know, that, of course, is false. That is a claim uh, that is that gains traction, pulls on the emotional strings quite a bit. But the reality is that when you go to a Catholic hospital, uh, you are able to receive the full range of appropriate treatments for your condition, even in complicated pregnancies. But there won't be any cases in which a decision will be made to end the life of one human being to benefit another. There will be you know, potential yeah. conflicts and situations where you'll have to intervene. And in some of those cases, by the principle of double effect, it will be uh, allowable to give the mother a treatment that will have uh, the unintended but tolerated effect of the loss of the child's life as a secondary effect. Uh, and, you know, that depends on the details of the case. But, you know, to give you just one simple example that's used quite a bit against the church, if a woman's water breaks and uh, she does get an infection after her water breaks, that can be a very dangerous situation. Uh, but in that situation, if she goes to a Catholic hospital and they verify that, in fact, she has an infection, because just because your water breaks, it's not a guarantee that you'll get infected. Uh, many pregnancies can continue without that infection arising. But uh, if you do have the infection and it's fulminating and it's not possible to control it using antibiotics or other appropriate means, uh, it would be permissible in a Catholic hospital to do something called uh, an early induction of labor to clear out the infected membranes that are threatening the life of both the mother and the child. Now, the secondary effect will be that that baby will, uh, will die after delivery, you know, some few minutes after delivery, probably, if it's a premature uh, baby, very premature. Uh, if it's later in the pregnancy, of course, you would do that and hope to save both of them. Uh, so that's an example of where the principle of double effect allows for OBGYNs in a Catholic hospital to properly and you know directly address the particulars of a complicated uh, maternal fetal conflict situation, uh, and you know that that would be the kind of care that would be available in other 
yeah. non-Catholic hospitals as well. The number again is 888-3187-884. Father Tad Boholchik, our guest from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. I actually have been surprised at how often things are said as if they are just facts. Like you go to a Catholic hospital with a miscarriage, uh, or, or then you're going to be, I don't know, uh, uh, you're not going to be treated or you're not going to receive the treatment. Ectopic pregnancies, people have said, and I've known myself several Catholic women who had ectopic pregnancies who received the same care that any woman would receive in a Catholic hospital from Catholic doctrines, doctors. So uh, it, it strikes me that the, there's either, and I do think in many people's, in many cases, there are pro-life people, even in the news media, who actually don't know the Catholic position. They're just, they should probably know it. They should inform them, but they don't know. But some of it does also seem disingenuous. Uh, now, I won't make, ask you to make an evaluation about that, but when you hear these things, like that women are not women who are suffering miscarriage are going to be mistreated or not well treated or ectopic pregnancies, these don't seem to be these seem to be things that the Catholic Church has been at, in its hospitals able to deal with just fine up till now. That's absolutely true. I mean, the the hospitals have been providing this care for decades and decades, and of course, those on the other side are looking for opportunities to find specific examples where they can say that a woman's health was neglected when she presented herself to a Catholic hospital. But a lot of times when you dig into the details of it, uh, either the Catholic hospital, some of the people there didn't actually know uh, what was allowable, morally speaking. I've seen that, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, you know, or um, <clears throat> it's, it's just a, a, a case of uh, incorrect uh, you know, labeling of what the, the Catholic hospital can do, and they, they are able to receive the appropriate treatments. So, I mean, I think the, the key principle here to remember always that, that we need to emphasize, and I, I understand why some of these cases are complex. When you look at the, the kind of mysterious interconnectedness of a mother and her child in the womb, and how certain things are shared and certain other things don't go across the placenta and so on. You, you have a very kind of delicate balance and it's complicated sometimes to sort out even which tissues belong to which individual. But at the end of the day, the church approaches these matters with great clarity and says there are always two patients who are present to you when a pregnant woman comes, at least two, you know, if she's carrying twins or triplets then you have multiple patients in front of you. And the church seeks to provide care to all the patients who are present uh, in that situation and not to instrumentalize, that's the big word we use, not to instrumentalize one for the advantage of another. In other words, targeting one for demise uh, for the benefit of the other or to serve the interests of the other. That's going to represent bad medicine at its core and, you know, runs counter to the Hippocratic Oath itself, which is pre-Christian. Uh, <laughs> indeed it is. Uh, 888-318-7884, the number. Another area that uh, you might want to talk with uh, Father Tad about, which I had uh, uh, neglected, because uh, many people do have qu questions about the bioethics involved in 
uh, transgender surgeries and treatments, those kinds of things. It's all welcome. You're welcome to call and ask your question. Often uh, on this uh, program, you'll hear an apologist say something like, well, I'm not sure about the science or I don't know about you know the specifics of these particular things. Well, in general, uh, Father Tad will know those things. So you can get very specific answers if you have questions uh, in that regard. 888-318-7884. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. Do you love sharing the gospel and want to learn to be more effective? Join the St. Paul Street Evangelization Online School of Evangelization. You will learn to build bridges of trust and make disciples by befriending strangers, proclaiming the gospel, inviting people to the church, and praying with others. We'll ask for a pledge of financial support, but if you are unable to give, we'll give you a membership at no cost. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellis, your host, Father Tad Paholchik, our guest, the number 888-318-7884. If you've got a question for Father Tad, you're very welcome to call 888-318-7884. I am obliged to tell you the following before we go back to any phones, however. Uh, you can use the promo code MYDEAL22 right now to get an extra 20% off on top of any other savings you get at shop.catholic.com. That's an extra 20% off your already discounted purchase at shop.catholic.com. And if your purchase goes over $75 and you live in the United States, your shipping's free. Shop.catholic.com. The number here is 888-318-7884. We're taking your bioethics questions, uh, whether it's a, a question involving your own family or your own uh, health, or th that, that's perfectly welcome. 888-31-TRUTH, or maybe uh, something that's in the news uh, that you'd like to get the Catholic perspective on, 888-318-7884. I kind of uh, threw it out there about the, the transgender stuff, and I, got, and I was asking you at the break, but you're answering a lot of questions around uh, transgenderism these days. It's really the case. It's amazing how much interest there is. Uh, and I think people are just, they're encountering it, in, especially in school settings, where, uh, you know, the question of, will there be some students who are transitioning who are going to appear in the classroom? And what are the expectations that are being put forward by school systems, you know, especially uh, public school systems, but also Catholic school systems are, are grappling with this as well. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, the whole area of pronouns and uh, it, it, there's just so much going on. It's, uh, it, right. it's really a challenging area, I think, for people to wade into. Uh, it, it, I think one of the particular challenges is that um, there's this kind of obvious statistical explosion of claims of transgenderism among a teenage or preteen girls that people are saying, well, w w doesn't that suggest to you something other than just that this is uh, 
maybe a natural phenomenon that we had previously suppressed knowledge of and something else is going on here? Do you have that sense? I do. I think, you know, in the past, the whole uh, medical establishment, when it looked at transgender, the majority of the cases were men who wanted to transition and become women. And that really was the case, you know, from the earliest times. And very recently, the numbers, the statistics, as you've hinted at, have flipped on that. And it is now the majority women, girls, uh, who are wanting to transition and to become males. So this is a, f a striking phenomenon that there's been this incredible flip-flop. And I, it does raise the question, is there the potential here for a kind of social reinforcement that is gaining traction and really taking off full speed. And I suspect very strongly that this is the case, that young girls are, you know, going through puberty, I always tell people, going through puberty is a tough thing. It's yeah. tough, it's, it's tough for most of us, you know, figuring out our place in the world, figuring out how we relate to other people, dealing with questions of our own sexuality. It was all tough and it's still tough. And maybe it's more tough now as kids grow up. And, you know, I think when in a, in a very porn-saturated society, you have certain expectations for girls and women, and there's pressure, you know, there to conform that may be hard for some people. And you also have this other angle, which is that when you do something like declare that you're going to transition, imagine if you're sort of not noticed very much at your school yeah. And suddenly you come out and say this, suddenly you become the center point, the focus of everybody's attention. Uh, and, you know, that on its own may be kind of appealing to yeah. a young person who's struggling to find, you know, their place in society or even just at the society of the, the local school. A bunch of folks on the phone uh, for you, Father, so I'm going to go to the phones if that's all right with you. Absolutely. All right, we'll go to Carolyn in upstate New York, listening to EWTN on Channel 130 Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Carolyn, we're glad you're here. Go ahead with your question for Father Tad Paholchik. Hello, Father Tad. Thanks for taking my question. Can you hear me? Yes. Absolutely. Can hear radio, you but I don't know how else to talk to you through my car phone. <laughs> so I, I, your comment um, about the synthetic embryo and not being able to make, um, you know, how can they say when they're making a living embryo from a non-living non -living tissue? So in the question and the controversy about the stem cell lines, um, I've heard many callers call on other shows saying, well, you know, it really wasn't a human, you know, it wasn't alive. It was just a cell line. But I had read, and it may have even been your reading that said, you know, you can't make a living cell line from non-living tissue. So that had to have been like a planned abortion so that the researchers could be right there to take the baby, get the living tissue, start the cell line. So can you comment on that? And then secondly, if that really is the truth, and I want to be able to say that if I have conversations with people, I want to be sure I'm correct in that. Um, how do we present a consistent position if we say, well, it happened a long time ago, so we might as well just use it. I feel like just avoid it at all costs because we'll never convince the researchers to use a different method, like, you know, umbilical blood cells and everything to make those cell lines as opposed to taking aborted tissue. Thank uh, you. Father? 
Yeah, great question, Carolyn. I think, um, you know, first to just clarify about getting a cell line, because there's two different things here that a lot of people, including a lot of Catholics, get confused about. One would be stem cells. The other would be a cell line. Cell lines, for example, are used to make vaccines. Stem cells are not used to make vaccines. Stem cells are used for other types of research. Uh, and for the most part, you know, they, they are not used uh, for vaccine production. So with the whole vaccine controversy, people were saying, well, where do these cell lines come from? And because they're alive, which you pointed out correctly, they are, they're living cells, they propagate, you can continue to grow them in the laboratory as long as you feed them and take care of them. They did come from the corpse of a deceased baby. Uh, the, the description by researchers, if you go back to the original papers, you know, they indicate that these were obtained after an abortion. And what basically happened was a researcher showed up at the door of an abortion clinic or a hospital that was doing an abortion. And they said, you know, do you have any fresh cadavers here? And it turns out that kidneys uh, are one of the last organs to undergo degradation in your body. And so they end up being very useful for getting cells after somebody has died or after a baby has died. You can remove kidneys and get uh, cells that will give you then a cell line. Uh, you, can we just hang on for just a quick second while we take a break, Father, and we'll come back and you can continue with uh, Carolyn's question? Absolutely. Carolyn, I hope you can hang on. We have to do this break. We'll take a quick break and be right back with more with Father Tad Paholchik on bioethics right after this on Catholic Answers Live. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet, and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book. $2,500 prints 10,000 and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life. But only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. Want to know more about the origins of the Catholic Church? Joe Heschmeyer explores the beginnings of Christianity in The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. Joe digs deep into the words and actions of those who lived right after the apostles to refute anti-Catholic claims of how the faith was lived back then. Order your copy of The Early Church Was the Catholic Church today at shop.catholic.com or get it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. As Catholic apologetics have gotten stronger, Protestant responses have gotten stronger as well. And now they have their own answers to rebut the standard Catholic proofs. 
don't fret, we've got you covered. In his new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, apologist Carlo Broussard gives well-reasoned biblical answers to Protestant comebacks. Order your copy of Meeting the Protestant Response today at shop.catholic.com or ask for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. Father Tad Paholchik, our guest this hour. Your calls welcome, 888-318-7884. And if you've listened for long, uh, you know that Father uh, Tad is with the National Catholic Bioethics Center, where he's the director of education. And Carolyn in New York is on the line with a question about uh, stem cells and cell, cell lines. And Father, you were in the midst of an answer about what which can be used, which can't be used. Yes, yeah, so... The notion that cell lines come from abortions, uh, that is true sometimes. You can also get cell lines from uh, other cells, like uh, from uh, circumcision tissue that's been left over, or just when somebody has a typical routine surgery, you could even use some of those cells that are left over to make a cell line. But I think the important point, and and Carolyn was kind of driving at this, she was saying, well, isn't it the case that the baby is still alive when they take out these cells? And the short answer is no. Uh, What happens is this is a corpse, but you know, as our bodies decay after we die, some of the tissues and organs take a little bit longer to decay. And I mentioned the kidney. So the kidney has been used to make a cell line It's called HEK-293, and that cell line was very important in the development of various vaccines uh, during COVID and also for uh, other vaccine work as well. So that's the cell line story. It does not require that the baby be alive. Uh, It can be a corpse, and it, it is typically a corpse. Meanwhile, stem cells do require a living human and you have to make the decision that I'm going to kill this living embryo that's in front of me, this living human being, in order to get the stem cells. So it is a, it, it, it's coterminous. The isolation of the cells is coterminous with the killing of the human. It happens at exactly the same time. And basically what you do is you pour some chemicals onto these embryos and these chemicals digest the embryo into its individual cells and the embryo no longer exists and then you get your stem cells out of that so that involves a much more um, serious objection that you have to kill in order to obtain these meanwhile the abortion case somebody else did the killing and of course that's wrong completely wrong in itself but you showed up afterwards and said are there any corpses here that I can rate. Now, we shouldn't be using those for research either. And I think Carolyn was was getting at that, pointing that out, which is also correct. We need to develop alternative cell lines from some of those other sources that I mentioned. And the church has emphasized that in numerous documents going all the way back to, uh, you know, the early 2000s. Uh, That all makes sense to you, Carolyn? It does. I said this one caller had called in and said, well, it could have just been a spontaneous miscarriage. It wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, 
chosen abortion. But I've had three miscarriages, and they tell you your baby's heart has stopped. Go home in three or a couple days, you know, you will have the miscarriage. So, you know, I think that's disingenuous to say, I don't really know what it means. Um, it, it has to be, there has to be some coordination between, you know, okay, I know there's going to be, uh, and it bothers me that we have said, well, it's still okay to use it, even though, because the Vatican, I know, had some vaccines and, and, and Santa Fe had some vaccines, and I don't know if there's enough. Uh, encouragement for them to continue to make vaccines that are not tainted by abortion if we just say, well, it's already there, we'll just use this anyway. Father? And I- oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Father, go ahead with your response, Carolyn. Yeah, I, I think uh, she's raising a good point about, you know, how much incentive is there for pharmaceuticals, companies, big pharma, to change the way they do their business? And this is where it really does get important for us as believers to contact them and say, hey, when when the next pandemic comes up, don't just turn to these cell lines that came out of abortions. There are plenty of alternatives out there. At the beginning, as you're planning the whole project, make sure you don't produce the vaccine using any of those problematic cell lines and don't test the vaccine in ways that rely on those. And to the extent that the big pharma hears from us, this actually is something of concern to them. There was a whistleblower uh, who was in, I think it was uh, maybe in Merck or one of the other big ones, and released some documents that indicated internal discussions that were taking place at big pharma when the news was getting more and more airtime that vaccines were being produced by relying on cell lines from abortions. So it is partly, you know, uh, the consumer has to push here and uh, because there's going to be a lot of times expediency on the part of big pharma. They just want to get things done. They're going to use the standard cell lines that everybody has been using for a long time. They're not going to want to do the hard work of shifting into a slightly different system in order to make the new vaccines. Carolyn, uh, thank you very, very much. All the lines are full, so I got to keep moving, but a very helpful discussion and appreciate the call and the questions. I'm going to go to Tallahassee, Florida now. Javier, listening in Tallahassee on YouTube. Javier, go ahead with your question for Father Tad Paholchik. Hello. Um, Well, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, And uh, my question is um, how, how to respond to pro-choice philosophers who bite the bullet on, on like, basically human life um, depending on consciousness, like Peter Singer, um, that, like, he basically says that human life depends on consciousness to the point that since infants don't really have a robust consciousness, um, that doesn't mean they have value. Okay, um, Javier, that's a, that's a good question. You're right that this is a theme that it kind of circles back over and over. And I think the, the the way I try to look at this and to kind of encapsulate it for people is to say, what matters is whether you're talking about the kind of entity that is able to develop consciousness. Is it that kind of entity or not? Because not all entities are capable of that. And once you have an entity that has that inherent capability, you are talking about a human being, 
a being that is human, that is sacrosanct, that is deserving of unconditional protection. Uh, and, you know, it's by the very structure of the entity that you owe that respect to it. So whether at that particular moment it's able to manifest consciousness doesn't matter. Because it would be like saying, well, the only thing that matters is if you're able to balance your checkbook. And it's like, well, wait, you know, newborns can't balance checkbooks yet. And even three-year-olds can't balance checkbooks yet. But are they the kind of being that is capable of balancing a checkbook? Of course they are. And that's the beauty of their real being. That, you know, that's the dynamism that we have to safeguard so that that full potential that is there is safeguarded and not uh, cut off, you know, in a violent way through abortion or other approaches like embryonic stem cell research. Javier, uh, thank you very much. It makes me nervous. I don't think I would pass the balancing the checkbook test. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> there's a lot of adults who might not, but I appreciate that question, Javier. I'm just moving on because we do have full lines at the moment. Uh, Mike in Michigan, listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Mike, go ahead with your question for Father. Yeah, hi, Father. I'm not sure I'd pass the balance the checkbook test either, but thank you for taking my call. Um, with regard to the COVID vaccine, uh, I know some people that were uh, reluctant or didn't want to get it because they believed it altered their DNA and they felt it was transhumanistic or, or they were participating in transhumanism. Uh, and I will say, I'm not sure I fully understand transhumanism or whether there's any linkage uh, to the COVID vaccine, and I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, that this was one of these myths that kind of gained a foothold during COVID, which was the idea that if you get a, an mRNA vaccine, it alters your DNA in a kind of permanent fashion and makes modifications that are going to be passed on to your kids and grandkids. And that is not correct. That's not how mRNA vaccines work. They produce, uh, you know, a, a protein from the RNA which triggers your immune system to get activated. That's basically how they work. And um, they don't go in and start, you know, altering your chromosomes, etc. Now I know that. There was one or two papers, I, and I've had people send me these papers that say, oh, well, there, you know, it's possible to demonstrate that it may, there may be some tiny level of what's called reverse transcription back into the DNA. Uh, but the reality is that that is not likely to be a mechanism that is part uh, in any measurable way of typical vaccine introduction. So this was... Uh, this is, you know, not, and it's certainly not something that even if it did occur, you know, you get injected into your, your muscle or your arm, uh, that this is not the sort of thing that alters your ability to hand on DNA to your children and grandchildren. So um, the claims here about transhumanism, that you are changing our human nature by getting vaccinated, in a way that's permanent for the whole future of mankind, uh, it's simply an exaggeration. It's not correct. 
uh, Mike, that brings us to the break. So I'm going to leave that there. Thank you very, very much uh, for the question. We'll take this break. Be right back with more bioethics questions for Father Tad Paholchik right after this on Catholic Answers Live. It's all about the truth. Catholic Answers Live. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. EWTN offers listeners and viewers the daily readings to enable you to accompany the Mass of the day. Our Catholic daily readings include the readings of the day, along with online videos. It's a great resource for all who desire to live a life of faith that is pleasing to our Lord. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Welcome back, Catholic Answers Live. And uh, today we welcomed back uh, Father Tad Paholchek, who we have not seen in a while. And it's, it's very nice to have you back, Father. I really enjoy having you on the program. Uh, Father is a, a scientist and an ethicist and a Catholic priest. So he's the guy we want to talk to when we... Um, what kind of scientist are you? You're like a, a brain scientist, right? Right, neuroscientist. neuroscientist. Yeah, that was my training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, simple people call it brain scientists. You fancy guys call it neuro- <laughs> <laughs> neuroscientists. You're right. Uh-huh. Uh, Marie in Rhode Island is uh, watching on Facebook. Uh, Marie, uh, thanks for waiting. Go ahead uh, with your question for Father Tad Paholchik. Hello, Father Tad. I had met you about eight years ago at Bryant University in Smithfield, Rhode Island, at one of our catechetical Saturdays. Why wow, you don't have any and, accent uh, at all from Rhode Island, Marie? Huh? I'm, I'm just what? I'm teasing you. I said you don't have any accent at all because oh. you sound quite like the Rhode Islander, maybe even a Massachusetts. Oh yes, or... oh yes. I, I'm a Canuck. You're... I'm a French Canadian. Oh. <laughs> well, we're we're glad to have yeah. you here. Uh, yeah, go ahead with your yeah. question for Father. Go ahead, Marie. Yes, my son Joshua, who is autistic, an adult man, he can't wrap himself around uh, the homosexual transgender transgender uh, thing, um, he's asking me to ask you, what causes homosexuality? Is it, um, you know, DNA? Is it, are they born with it? Uh, is it a social, cultural thing? Is it a choice? And the same thing for transgenderism. I'm going to let Father answer, but I just realized who you are, Marie. You're an old friend of ours here yes. at Catholic Answers. Oh, You've yes, been around. I am. Oh, I am. I'm so yeah, happy to I've talk been with you, Marie. For a long time. Yeah. Mm, uh, me too. Me too. I don't call often. I just listen a lot of times in chat. Ah, with well, I, I did. On, for some reason, I didn't the make the connection, uh, Marie, with, uh, with our old friend, but I'm glad you're here. So, Father, how might you help yeah. uh, Marie's son? Yeah, well, <clears throat> Marie, it's uh, neat to. Uh, reconnect with you again after eight years or so. Um, I do remember speaking at Bryant, uh, that engagement that you mentioned. Um, So, I mean, your question here is, you've pointed out in asking the question, a number of variables. And I think you've listed what are believed to be potential contributors. In other words, there's not one cause and effect 
simple, linear answer to your question. Some people would like to say, oh, are they born that way? It's automatically you're born that way. And so it's genetic kind of hardwired. Well, no, it's not hardwired. We know that because identical twins who have the same identical genes, uh, you only have a shared what's called concordance uh, between same-sex attraction for them in, in less than 50% of the cases. So there are clearly environmental factors, uh, which you alluded to. There may be some social factors. Uh, there may be some cases in which there are elements of trauma that will have, uh, you know, contributory role. And the list, you know, could be expanded. So it's not clear really what is at the uh, origins or genesis of homosexuality. Uh, and it's a similar answer for gender dysphoria, for this sense of ambiguity about who a person is or a strong feeling that they are actually the opposite sex. So um, the same types of, of variables that we mentioned, you know, there may be, <clears throat> when I say that it's not strictly genetic, that doesn't mean that there won't be potentially some element of uh, genes somewhere that contributes in the pathway or in the tributary to making a person, you know, have same-sex attractions. But at the moment, we don't have clear candidates for that. The research is still ongoing. And those things are likely only to represent predispositions. In other words, they're not hardwired, uh, kind of set in stone, but may strengthen a particular leaning that an individual may be experiencing personally. So in other words, the answer is a complicated one. We don't know fully the causal reasons either for gender dysphoria or for same-sex attraction. Okay, Marie. Okay, um, one more question, if I may. Yes, um, are they still studying um, for answers to that, uh, to those questions oh, I had? Yes, Marie, absolutely. Uh, researchers are, are looking into this on an ongoing basis, uh, it's just, it's a complicated question. You know, for example, if you wanna ask the question, could the hormonal environment within the uterus affect how a baby develops and maybe have that baby grow up and have a propensity to same-sex attraction? You know, there's a lot of variables that you've gotta map out there before you can actually trace it all the way back to those hormones in the uterus. Um, but researchers are working on that and asking, you know, intelligent questions and seeking to understand cause and effect as best they can. Thanks, Marie. I'm going to keep moving to try to get everybody that's on the lines on uh, the air with Father. Uh, but it's nice to talk with you again, Marie. Loretta in Lake Stevens, Washington, listening to EWTN on Channel 130 Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Loretta, please go ahead with your question for Father Tad Paholchik. I really appreciate you taking a call. Um, my doctor wants me to start taking the Humeropen um, for my rheumatoid arthritis. And the information he gave me says that uh, biologics uh, are derived from living substances such as human and animal cells. Uh, what do you know about these cells, especially the human part? Okay. Um, <clears throat> 
That's a, you know, we, we do get a certain number of questions uh, uh, like yours, where people are wondering about particular drugs that they've been prescribed and, you know, do they have any connection to cell lines derived from abortions? This is actually a huge field and we don't track all the individual pharmaceuticals ourselves. So what I wanna do is recommend that you get in touch with a group called Children of God for Life. Uh, they have a website and you can check with them. They track more closely which pharmacolo pharmacological agents do rely on cell lines that have a connection back to abortion. And um, they might be able to tell you specifically for, uh, for the, the drug you're mentioning, Humera, was it Humera, uh, that, you know, right. whether yeah. that has, yeah, whether that has the uh, human, it, it, you know, you may have cell lines from humans that are not from abortions, which would not raise any problems, but whether cell lines derived from abortions were used in production or in testing, I don't know that uh, off the top of my head. Okay, and that was Children of God for Life, and then uh, probably a dot what org or. Yes, I think it's it, Children of God for Life. Yeah, or it might be C O G for Life dot org, if I remember. Yeah, uh, uh, Loretta, C O G for Life dot org. Darren says yes, that's it. C O G for Life dot org. Thanks, Loretta. Uh, if it sounds like I'm going quick, I'm just trying to go quick to get everybody who wants to talk to Father on. Uh, we're talking about bioethics with Father Tad Paholchik from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, if you ha if you run up against uh, these challenging questions, you can always visit ncbcenter.org, ncbcenter.org. Addie in Michigan watching on YouTube, you are up next. Go ahead, Addie, with your question for Father. Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, because I've talked to a few different priests um, in my area about this, but I'm someone who suffers from gender dysphoria, and I transitioned six years ago. Um, during that transition, I became interested in the Catholic Church, and now I'm just wondering if I do choose to join the Church, would I have to detransition to join the Catholic Church? Hmm, that is a good question. Um, <clears throat> to join the Church, I'm not sure that you would, you know, immediately have to, but I think the issue of uh, making a determination on your part that you are um, not going to remain in the state of transitioning and seek to uh, respect and return to your native sexuality, that that, that decision somewhere does need to be uh, a part of your journeying towards the fullness of the truth. So the question of when, uh, you know, one would have to do that, maybe not before starting RCIA or, you know, it would depend on the particular uh, situation that you're, you're dealing with this. But in the, in the long run, this would indeed be part of the journey that one could not you know, no, assuming that you're in a situation where there's there's um, a freely made choice originally to move mm -hmm. in the transgender direction, then you would need to, uh, you know, move back to 
the more integral and complete and correct you know view of your own person and humanity there so that that's i you know i can't answer it specifically for rcia in all cases but um eventually that would that would be required okay well i think you appreciate for the clarification well, uh, thank you, Addy. Uh, it's as you're considering uh, coming into the Catholic Church, if you'd like, we have a little book called The Words of Eternal Life, True Happiness and Where to Find It by our own Jimmy Aiken. We'd be happy to send that to you if you'd like it. And if, if there's if more questions come up, we'd love to talk with you again. That's what we're here for. If you want to email us, you can always email us at radio at catholic.com. I think I have time to get more on, but I'm going to give it a try. Addy, just hang on the line if you'd like that book. Uh, Loretta in Lake Stevens, Washington, listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. You're going to have to be quick if you'd like an answer from Father Tad Paholchik. I was already on. I'm oh. still listening to the radio. Oh, Loretta, I went to the wrong... <laughs> I'm sorry. Consuelo, I, uh, you are on next. Can you be quick with your question for Father? Yes, it wasn't a question, Father. But anyway, what I wanted to... Hi, Father Tad, you're Polish. Um, I wanted to say, I get, I, 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 when I studied at the University of Portland, and it was uh, several years ago, it was human development and learning, and this was a required course, and it was normal. It, they were explaining to us that in human development and learning, whether it's a boy or a girl, there's a stage where they go through an attraction to the same sex, and then it ends, and they just continue going on. Or else the boy, the same thing. And I'm thinking, doesn't anybody remember this? Doesn't and didn't anybody learn that when they were going through graduate school on this and that? And I'm thinking, some of these doctors are dodo birds because nobody seems to be mentioning this at all. Father, I'm gonna just because there's only 30 seconds left, I have to get a response from you. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe a, a quick way, a shorthand to remind us of the complexity of sorting out our sense of sexual attraction. But yes, I mean, I think there are there is a kind of spectrum that can affect people as they go through uh, early sexual development as they're trying to figure out their place. It's kind of a generic answer, but I think <clears throat> that's true. But um, we didn't leave you much time, you know, Father. <laughs> Consuelo, thank you. I'm sorry uh, that we didn't have more time for that. Uh, I, I do want to get a comment. On, is she correct that you're Polish? Uh, yes, it's yeah. a, my name is a Polish name, and my dad was from Warsaw. Oh, I didn't even know. Uh, very cool. So you're a first, no, second generation American. Uh, Father, may we have your blessing before we go? Absolutely. <clears throat> may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, Father Tad Paholchik is our guest. You can find him at fathertad.com. You can also go to NCB Center. That's the website of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, ncbcenter.org. Father, I'm so glad we've connected again. I hope we'll do more of this in the coming year. Me too. Thanks so much, Cy. Just great to be with you. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Live. Catholic Answers Live.